Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. So much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guests for a little while as we get an opportunity to talk about all things compliance and health law. Today, I'm joined by two amazing, outstanding healthcare professionals. They are leading attorneys within the healthcare team at Neck and Pruitt. And I'm talking about Alice Harris and Jenna Godlewski. Good morning, ladies. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for carving time out of what I know is an incredibly busy schedule. Good morning. Good morning, Sean. Thanks for having us. All right. So, Today, um, we're going to talk about the CMS framework. And if you're not familiar with that term, it was a term that I had heard of, but I wasn't as familiar with it as what I am now uh, after reading this really great article that was uh, co-authored by uh, Jenna and Alice uh, about a week, week and a half ago, and they updated it with some additional information as things were uh, being provided. So real quick to steal just a, a little bit of this. Um, on June 8th of 2022, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued its, tw- uh, 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 its strategic framework. And again, this was not issued in the traditional format of regulation or regulatory guidance it was really more as a letter that was issued to folks and listen to me on this one y'all because i think there is so much that we need to be able to focus on not only as clinicians as healthcare professionals you know talking about the business of medicine and the intersection of regulatory compliance and health law but also as consumers of health services because really cms is the gold standard by which every other insurance company seems to follow suit but if you're like me with aging parents um there's a lot in here about the transition to acos and i think you want to really listen to and and get a good grasp on because there's some things in here that i believe will have direct impact on patient care going forward so let me pause because i don't want to get too far down the road but let me let me first say again ladies i I read your article the updated version of it i thought it was an excellent article but i'm guessing there's a lot more beyond what you all uh uh uh, were writing about uh yes uh so good morning everybody um so this, this strategic plan is and um, it's very interesting because it is as, framed as an open letter to providers and to um, the community. But it, as as we read it, we realized 
really setting out the CMS's priorities for the coming year. Um, and so as we looked at it, um, we realized that President Biden's administration was really uh, telling us where CMS was going for the year. And we we identified what we thought were six uh, top trends. Uh, Jen and I are regulatory lawyers, uh, and we uh, sort of gleaned six trends we thought were most important in the reimbursement field. Um, but as, as Jen and I were talking earlier, there's a lot of interesting information in this guidance. Uh, so we're today we're talking about what we think are the six top trends, but we'd highly recommend that everybody think of the strategic plan uh, because we see that, that by the Biden administration is definitely going forward in King's marching order. Yes, there's so much in that letter that affects, as Sean mentioned, that affects consumers, um, affects administrators. But Alice and I, um, you know, we represent providers, so we looked at it. What are these six out of this letter, what do we think is going to affect providers most in the coming years? And tried to give them a, um, you know, help them prepare for what's definitely coming down the pike. Yeah, and I and I think you did a great job of doing that. Um, you know, one of the things that you lead off in your article talking about are the um, flexible waivers changing post-pandemic, right? And I think one of the big questions is when and is this public health emergency at the federal level ever going to end, right? Because we just last week got or, or the week prior were were notified at like four o'clock on a friday afternoon that the public health emergency was going to be extended for another 90 days because we never got the 60-day notification but everybody knows that the majority of states have already moved beyond the pandemic but my, my question to you because you were talking about this one of the very first things that you brought up is Shifting to a post-pandemic world where a lot of the 1135 waivers have been retracted and things are supposedly getting back to, you know, pre-pandemic uh, ways of doing things, why would they why would they take these 1135 waivers away but still keep the public health emergency intact at the federal level? That's that's what I'm confused on. That's a very interesting question. So I think that the regulatory world, including CMS, is in the post-pandemic phase. Um, and as you just mentioned, a lot of the waivers have already been terminated. Um, some of the flexibilities, including telehealth, remain. Um, and I, CMS, and you can see on the OIG website that the federal government is looking very hard into what we keep from the pandemic. Um, and so, quite frankly, I think. You know, as we all know, last year, the um, enforcement um, started gearing up again. All the auditors uh, certainly are back with full force. Um, so I think, and this is just my opinion, that the federal government left the um, pandemic powers in place uh, in case. We're heading into another fall. Um, we've had variants come and go. So they, it may be that they're leaving the power in place for another 90 days 
um, in case it's needing, in case there's more surges. But um, I think we're firmly in the post-pandemic world for the most part. Um, and um, I think that's the way I look at the post-pandemic, but I think the government's reserved its rights in case they're needed. I agree with Alice um, wholeheartedly. And I also think one of the big issues that um, has caused the PHE to continue to be extended is the great, there's, I started doing research on this. There's something like 40 potential pieces of legislation out there that want to, you know, in some way, shape or form, um, make different aspects of the telehealth waivers permanent. And I don't think the government knows what to do. And there's so many groups out there advocating and lobbying for this. And I don't think they've figured it out yet. So I think that is also um, under, you know, maybe behind the scenes. Another reason that, that you know, we refer into our article to this great unwinding of these waivers. And that's part of it with the telehealth, because mm -hmm. in some ways it's been so effective in so many different areas, especially behavioral health, but the government has always tended to view telehealth as a huge fraud potential. And so I think there's a lot of conflict with how we move forward with that post pandemic. Yeah, and, and I, I don't disagree with you at all. I, I think you're right. I think the government, as with most things, is struggling to figure out how they're going to move forward. Um, but the question becomes, with now um, the World Health Organization declaring another public health emergency with the monkeypox, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where this thing goes but let's jump into let's jump into the six elements and the very first one that you talk about are it or is the medicare and medicaid beneficiaries being moved to aco contractors by 2030 now when they say by 2030 it doesn't mean they're going to wait till 2029 to do this it means that they're already looking at uh programs they're looking at studies things are already transitioning to move patients or, or beneficiaries into these ACOs. And, and, and let me ask you this, why do you think that is? Do you think it's to put more financial controls in place or do you think CMS believes that having a PCP control referrals and basically the total care of a, a patient is better for outcomes from an equity standpoint because you know we we keep hearing about health equity we keep hearing about all these different terms but why do you think they're trying to move all of these beneficiaries into an aco i think what's interesting is you know they're they're setting the goal for alice and i talked about just how ambitious this is to say they want a hundred percent of the beneficiaries in an aco and we we did talk about you know, it's you can't glean, like we said, a lot from this letter. You kind of have to infer some things. So this is again just our opinion. But you know, we've seen, um, you know, talk and discussion of giving beneficiaries a medical home, you know, it, to help them coordinate their care better. Um, so yes, I agree. Probably that's the thought: is you have one person that knows this patient well, knows this person 
um, can help them. They they talk about, you know, they want to, you know, use telehealth more and, and home care more after hospital discharge um, to, to give people assistance with co-pays is another one of the goals. Um, but, you know, Alice and I were debating, like, it sounds like the current fee-for-service Medicare People will have choices, but the choices are going to probably just be among different ACOs. And Medicare fee for service, as we know it, is probably not going to exist anymore. Yeah, yeah you know, I, 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 I wonder, you know, Alice, I wonder if if the Medicare Advantage plans have shown CMS the ability to preserve the Medicare trust fund from a dollar's standpoint, right? To be able to control the cost by putting in place things like prior authorization. And I know that's one of the six things that you all uh, uh, address, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. But I just wonder how much of the MA plan success is driving CMS, at least under this current administration, to pushing patients into an ACO. And I wonder what, if any, impact the midterm elections will have. Let's just hypothetically say that the House and the Senate revert to Republican control. Do we still think we're going to see the same shift by CMS? Because this is under the Biden administration. So, yeah, that's always an interesting question on how much things are going to change administration to administration. Um, and, you know, I've been going to age myself a little bit you know, in the healthcare field, you know, about 27 years and watching this go along. Um, a lot of things um, in, in this regulatory field don't change as dramatically as you might, as you might suspect. Um, enforcement tends to say the same. Um, each administration uh, pushing that just as hard as the prior administration. I think, you know, it, the idea of ACOs is probably attractive to both sides of the aisle because of the cost saving, the less um, infrastructure needed by the Medicare and Medicaid programs. If you if you truly are going to that, the, the need no longer need for some of the contractors that they have more managed and more uh, predictable cost because uh, you know having a cost per beneficiary that's pretty much set um and then um you know i think all of us yeah if if it's if if both sides thought about it uh want the best for people of a, of a medicare age and you know having had a, a you know two parents that went through this you know having a uh, ACO that where you're getting a true referral sources and, and true communication between providers rather than trying to figure out uh, how to go step by step yourself. So I think that this is one of those ones that's gonna, probably going to stay the same regardless of how things change. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I picked up two points from what you were saying, and Jenna, I want to address one of those with you. But um, to your point, having a fixed cost per member. It really brings back the days of capitated care, right? Because yeah. we had that fixed rate, that per member per month capitated rate. Now, obviously, certain subspecialties are going to have to look at these things very carefully, like 
nephrologists who have dialysis centers to make sure that they're carving out, you know, certain certain things like dialysis care, which, you know, previously wound up being bundled. But you brought up another point, um, Alice, and, and Jenna, I want to direct this to you, which is law enforcement, right? Uh, or, or enforcement. Um, do you, and, and, and we talked about this a little bit earlier before we really got, you know, started with the program. Do you believe that we've entered into a new era, a new era of enforcement, a new era, and by enforcement, I'm talking about audits, investigations, you know, more aggressive, overzealous prosecutions, forcing providers to enter into settlement agreements, um, you know, what, what, as a healthcare attorney, what do you see as, as where we're headed from an enforcement I don't really think, you know, there's necessarily like, um, I don't know what the word is, an, an increase in enforcement. I just think it feels really bad right now because because of the temporary halt, now everything is really kicked back in with all the different um, auditing mechanisms that the government, you know, the federal government employs. And, you know, Alice and I are seeing, you know, I've practiced about nine years and this year I've participated in four Medicare ALJ hearings and I had not previously um, for, for my prior eight or nine years because now all of a sudden it's they're catching up it, the 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 ones that were on backlog are now being heard the ones that are currently filed are being heard much faster because they're being forced to do it so it feels like a very busy busy time but i don't think anything necessarily has changed i just the government's always going to be monitoring you providers and, and uh, there's some different mechanisms like the smrc which we talked about on our last um podcast right. but but they're still they're still doing the same data mining they're still doing the same um things they've always done to to identify potential you know overpayments but or fraud it just feels like a really busy time in our world yeah i think that's a great point um because again we had what over a year hiatus on audits and investigations and it wasn't until I believe like August 8th or 9th or 10th, somewhere around there in 2021, where the government said, hey, we're opening the floodgates. We have a backlog and we're going to get caught up on this thing. And enforcement is back in play, right? They turn back on the TPE program, right? Targeted, probe and educate. The SMRCs have become a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, people are becoming more aware of them. So, yeah, it, you know, it, it may not be to your point. And, and, and I guess only time will tell, right? It may not be that we've, you know, that we are seeing more aggressiveness on the part of government, but just the fact that it's the mere appearance because we had that hiatus for so long that, you know, we're seeing more and more of these things being publicized um, in settlement agreements from OIG and DOJ, um, simply because it's just catching up on the backlog. And to your point, um, you know, normally I engage in probably about 30 to 40 ALJ hearings a year. 
um, you know, with the different law firms that I, I, I engage with this year so far, I've done more than 30 already. Right. And I'm seeing cases from 2013, 2014 that are just right. now. I have a case coming up in a couple of weeks that was filed in 2013, and it is finally being yeah. heard. So it's it's pretty unbelievable. So and I, you know, I also we, just to mention Sean too. I think that you know, from what I'm reading, and we're starting to see, they're also we're also going to start seeing a lot of enforcement of COVID. Um, you know violations and COVID, you know, people that were not adhering um, in the government's view to the the COVID waivers, that's starting to kick in too. I think that's going to be the next wave of of what we're going to see in our world. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, You know, publicizing of all of the enforcement going after these folks uh, for violation of, you know, COVID, whether it was the funds they received, whether it was for telehealth services, whether it was for the provision of tests that were not medically necessary, kickbacks, things of that nature. I I agree with you. But as part of the ACO portion that you all talked about in your your, um, article, you brought up something called the REACH um, uh, model. It's a, a, a relatively new term or it's a completely new term can you can you tell us what REACH is? What what does the acronym R E A C H stand for? And really, what is the point of it? Well, it's a shift in the type of model. It stands for Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health. And so, um, as administrations will do, they uh, revamp their ACO model. Um, the focus again um, is greater access to benefits like home health, telehealth, um, and copay assistance, um, and, and also greater access as a whole uh, to beneficiaries who, whatever reason, have barriers to care. And so I think the ACA model was, was tweaked and changed uh, to provide those en- enhanced um, uh, and easier to access services, which is one of the driving forces of the plan as a whole. Got it. So another another aspect that you you brought up is that providers are going to be subject to more pre-authorization. Prior auth is a term that I don't think anybody working at a medical practice likes. Um, now you spend hours and hours and hours trying to get these surgical procedures approved trying to get diagnostic testing approved, trying to get different types of interventions, medication, whatever it is, transports, only to receive a notification that says, this prior authorization is not a guarantee of reimbursement of your claim. And I understand there's a lot of reasons why they give you the prior auth and then say that, but it doesn't do anything to make anybody feel warm and fuzzy. But I know right now CMS is using prior auth in a few different areas. Can you talk about what those areas are? And and do you have any predictions for where we may see them increase prior authorizations? Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting that prior authorization process is, like you say, an extremely burdensome. Um, and right now the four initiatives that CMS has in place 
or for certain outpatient department hospital services, uh, scheduled non-emergent ambulance transports, which we all know has been a, a lot of front abuse, um, uh, pre-authorization uh, initiative for durable medical, medical equipment, DMOs, if you will, and uh, a demonstration for home health services. Uh, so we know those actions are and initiatives are, are going on right now. And as you mentioned, there's other contractor pre-authorization processes um, for other services. Um, and the, the key enforcement philosophy is we'd rather uh, pre-authorize pre -authorize it and make you show us why um, there's um, a need for those services than pay and chase, which is a historical model. Um, and CMS has not articulated uh, where it might use the, where it might go with the organizations. Um, but um, we have in the recent federal register uh, told the community that community, they are exploring that and are looking for suggestions and are also asking for input from providers on how to not add to the provider burden and how to not block beneficiary access. So I like to think that it's a more thoughtful way of doing this and by asking for provider input um, it might not be so burdensome, but anytime you put pre-auth on it, it adds a lot of extra staff time and a lot of delay. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, you know, I know there's a lot of organizations out there trying to create a better widget, if you will, to bypass all of the headaches that are tied to prior authorization. Um, but again, you know, I can't help but to think that, you know, CMS the current administration is looking at the pre-authorization process that's in place at Medicare Advantage plans as well as commercial plans and wondering just how much money that could save, you know, because again, you have to believe that it ties into the ACO model and that dynamic shift that they want to get all beneficiaries. To Jenna's point, I think you said, you know, this could potentially lead to the end of fee for service in Medicare. So yeah, um, that, oh, go yeah. Ahead. I, was gonna, I was just gonna say, no, please. It's fine. It, it, it absolutely uh, can weed out improper claims if used properly uh, by by the provider having to demonstrate the need for the service uh, at this time or the need for the pre prescription drug um, and. Um, you know, as CMS always says, it's not a bar to enforcement, and I have seen uh, cases enforced where there was a pre-auth pro process, of course, because, you, you know, it still could lead to improper uh, practices. Uh, but I think that it, in, all, in all, it's also, it's a, it saves money uh, filtering out some of these improper um, issues ahead, ahead of time. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Now, one one area, one area that I do like um, in the framework that has been brought forward, and I agree with this, is in nursing home staffing and the scrutinizing of these nursing homes. Uh, for so many years, we have seen 
story after story about patient neglect, about patient abuse, about substandard care at nursing homes across the country. The question that I have for you ladies is, do you think that the government can really mandate minimum numbers of people that have to be staffing at a nursing home, given the fact that we still can't get people to come back to work and we're already in a significant shortage in healthcare professionals across the industry. I want to get your thoughts. Yes, I... Um, Alice and I had a long discussion about this as well, and, and I think we both agree with you from a consumer standpoint and, you know, as someone who has aging parents, it's awesome to be able to look on a website and see, plug in your zip code, which, you know, we provided that link in the article and you can see exactly where, you know, the nursing home and the, the long-term care facilities in your area, where they're at with staffing and, and rankings. Um, so that's great for transparency, which is a big um, push in, in this administration. But from the provider side, um, I feel for nursing homes and um, long-term care facilities that have been hit so hard by this pandemic. And you know, most of our clients right now that are getting hit with the SMRC audits are these long-term care facilities and they struggle so hard to, you know, get the staffing in that they need and and you know setting a federal requirement is gonna be tough. That I you know, for a lot of these providers that changes weekly. You know, people don't show up and they're really having a hard time getting good people in so um well, Sarah, if I, if I build on that jenna um i think it, it, i think the idea of a federal staffing level uh it, it could happen uh so the, many states if not all states currently mandate um staffing levels in nursing homes and cms just um, announced through another federal register document that it was um, inviting discussions on there. But, you know, to your point, I think that the government needs to also be thinking of how to promote and support more um, educational programs um, uh, CR, CR, you know, for all, all the different levels of professionals that work in nursing homes. Because you, it's, if you mandate a level, we also need to see um, uh, support for the building of programs and support for uh, tu tuition and other other incentives to increase the workforce. Yeah, I think those are I think those are all great points from both of you. Uh, you know, the the fourth point that you um, you you bring up in your article, and this one's kind of interesting for me. Um, is that providers should, quote unquote, expect an avalanche of new and revised CMS regulations. And, you know, again, I go back to whether or not the midterms are going to have any bearing on this. And, and, and again, being completely transparent, being completely apolitical on this, I think if you go back historically and look, when you have Democrats in in power, right, you tend to see more regulations. Uh, you tend to see, uh, you know, a, a prior error 
um, regulations reinstated, uh, updating of current regulations to sometimes more often than not make them more restrictive than when you have their counterparts, right? The Republican Party, which always touts less regulation, more control to the businesses, more control to the people. And and again, I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on. I think historically, if you look at this, you would find, you know, that that Democrat controlled uh, administrations tend to push out more regulations. Um, and and whether you feel comfortable or not opining on that, you know, I, I, I hope you will. Um, but what could providers um, or what should providers expect as what you're calling that avalanche of either new or revised guidance? So, um, yeah, no, it's always interesting to see when, when the, the change in administration, um, you know, what the new trend is. I don't think that you'll see a lot of change uh, in the anticipated regulatory burden through the midterms. I think it will take a change in, in, a, in a presidential administration if that happens. Because uh, President Biden, you know, as you as I'm watching, uh, for example, <laughs> with um, the abortion laws, uh, is actively directing HHS to take certain steps to, um, uh, you know, take certain um, actions related to reproductive access, to re reproductive care, uh, sending out. Um, uh, reminders about providers of TALA obligations. So I think that um, we will see through the end of the, at least this administration uh, the uh, increase in the guidance and sub-guidance. Um, but frankly, I'm hoping that a lot of it is just a restoration of what was previously in place. And I think the um, Strategic plan um, points to that, but what relates to be seeing how much new might come in. Jen, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I just think, just quickly, um, it's really just, to, in my mind, it's really about as these waivers are being terminated, it's hard to just have a hard stop, right? It's hard to just say, okay, we're taking this away without in some way adjusting to the new normal and to the new post-pandemic issues that are, you know, at hand. So that's what I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how we handle, um, you know, that unwinding of all these waivers. Yeah. And, and, and I want to get to, I think that's, that's the sixth aspect of your article, which is what you refer to as the great unwinding. And I'll get there in just a minute. But number five is one that I think concerns me. And I think it should concern all consumers of healthcare services, because this one deals with CMS's efforts to ensure prescription drug accessibility. But, but it's going to include the increased use of generics, biosimilars, and interchangeable biologics. Now, people may hear this and they think, oh, okay, you know, whatever, it's a biosimilar or it's interchangeable or it's a generic. I'm used to having the pharmacist ask me if I want a generic or do I want the brand of generics cheaper. But what happens? What happens 
when you have a drug that does not have a generic and there's no biosimilar, there's no interchangeable, and the payer decides that it's no longer on the formulary. Now seniors are potentially going to be forced, and you tell me if I'm overthinking this, seniors are going to be forced to now have to make a determination where they're already on a fixed income, where they saw significant increases in the cost of Medicare Part B uh, in 2022, right? Their premiums went up, their deductibles went up. They're now going to have to make that determination as to do I buy my medication or do I have to sacrifice, you know, something else like food? And, and, and I, I don't know that I'm over analyzing this one, but again, you all are the health law experts. What are your thoughts on this one? Well, for now, uh, at least CMS is announcing uh, a push towards generics, uh, interchangeable products, biosimilar products, um, and even that scares me. I, I don't know where we're at the point where the government's just not going to cover something or your insurance is just not going to cover something, um, but the, the move towards the um, products, I think, needs to be done uh, very um, thoughtfully. Um, there are certain, I can't remember the brand names right now, but like arthritis, arthritis drugs that have been in the news a lot recently uh, because the biosimilar um, is not in, in um, the physician's view as effective as the brand name. And that's, that scares me, that push towards oh, there's a biosimilar, or oh, there's a, you know, there's another product that's almost as good, or, you know, I don't, I, I'm scared of the rush towards these drugs without um, understanding whether they are truly interchangeable, whether they are truly, um, the, give the same effects. And, you know, what I have seen recently is uh, commercial payers such as Blue Cross changing their preferred uh, drug schedules to to you know, pay for the biosimilar where the person is paying a lot more off the schedule uh, for the drugs their their providers are prescribing for them. So it, it I think this this does scare me for consumers, um, whether you're Medicare or Medicaid or um, on commercial plans, um, and your uh, physician truly believes that the true interchangeable or biosimilar, but you're forced for cost reasons to do that, or as you say. In some draconian cases, that drug may no longer be available at all. So it does does scare me. This this if it goes forward, it needs to be done with a lot of thought and care, which is sometimes absent in the regulatory processes. And and I think it scares providers too. I mean, we had a situation, you know, with clients that there's they know what's working for their patients. They don't want to counsel them to you know, go to a biosimilar when they've had no problems for five, six years on a medication. And, and but, you know, the, the patient, like you said, is worried about economic concerns um, because the insurance companies aren't covering it anymore. And it puts providers in a horrible spot too. Yeah, you're right. And, and Remicade has been the big one in the rheumatological field, right? Remicade has been under extreme scrutiny. Yeah, Remicade, 
Arencia. Yeah. There, there's a whole bunch of them. But you know what's interesting, and, and, and I want to share this real quick with the listeners, and I'm going to be blogging about this uh, as well. I have been personally locked in a battle with United Healthcare. Um, and, and I know a lot of people here, oh, United Healthcare. Oh, boy. Yeah, United Healthcare. Um, I have been on a specific medication. It's called Dexalent. And they use it for people that have excessive acid reflux, GERD. And if you've never suffered from heartburn, count your blessings. Because when you have it and it wakes you up at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's the worst feeling in the world. You, you literally think you need to call the fire department and you're hoping somebody will spray you with a hose. Wow. But here's the deal. They took Dexalane and they took it off of the formulary list. Now, keep in mind, I've been on this drug now for four years. They put me on this drug because the proton pump inhibitors, uh, the omeprazole, okay? These have a tendency of creating gastric polyps, which could turn cancerous. I am so fortunate that I produced a whole bunch of these gastric polyps to the point where they removed 26 from my stomach in one session. And my physician, my GI doctor, made a determination that keeping me on this drug was creating more of a risk for me but it also wasn't helping because in addition to taking this proton pump inhibitor, I was also eating a box of Tums every 10 to 12 days. I was eating Rolaids. I was drinking Mylanta. It, it, it just wasn't working. Well, <clears throat> Dexalant, without the prescription benefit, is about $400 a month for a 30-day supply. You can get a coupon from the manufacturer which you only pay twenty dollars a month because it's supplemented by your insurance company well my insurance company said they no longer want to pay for it but i could appeal it well my doctor has sent in three letters now to united healthcare to optum rx right and every time they have said we're upholding our denial we don't believe that mr weiss needs dexalant First off, and I'm asking you this as healthcare attorneys, when does it become the practice of medicine without a license when you have non-clinical individuals at insurance companies making determinations as to what is and is not medically appropriate, reasonable, and necessary for a patient? And second, what right do they have to go against the treating physician? Because I know we have a treating physician rule. Right? Because we've had a number of cases. There was one that was just remanded back in 2020 because they said the ALJ violated the treating physician rule and didn't give deference to the treating physician. So I know I kind of carried on for about two minutes here, but I look at myself and I'm very fortunate that I could go on to GoodRx and I found a coupon for $125.06. And I can afford to pay for $125. But even finding that coupon, how many of our seniors, and, and I know I've had politicians argue with me, Sean, well, they got an increase to $1,600 a month on, you know, their, their uh, you know, some people that were like 15, you know, 1500 or now $1,600. But they didn't take into account the inflationary costs. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, we're at 9.8% inflation rate for June 2022, compared to 5.4% in June of 2021, and sub 1% in, uh, um, um, inflationary rate in June of 2020. That's my point. How how concerned do consumers need to be over this, and how concerned do providers need to be? And what are the legal recourses? I know I'm shifting a little off topic, but I thought this was critical. Well, I think consumers need to be very concerned, um, quite honestly. And I think that um, almost across the board, it is the, the, the commercial payers and sometimes Medicare and Medicaid um, in, within the bureaucracy seem to get away with a lot more um, onerous and perhaps not correct path, pathways in, in efforts to save money. Um, what it might take, uh, quite honestly, is either a political fix or a, um, you know, a lawsuit against a company like United um, it, to get a declaratory judgment or some other remedy. Um, I, I think it's very, very, very hard. I mean, like you said, and we've seen, unfortunately, numerous examples this year of patients um, and and through the providers who are advocating for their patients to uh, stay on certain drugs, not be forced to biosimilars, um, not be forced to alternative drugs. And time after time, at least the initial responses is, you know, we don't believe. I mean, overriding physician judgment. So, um, you know, I, I think it's going to take a political fix or a class action or other sort of action that um, reminds and uh, these commercial payers of their obligations to listen to uh, patient um, and provider input. And also, like we talked about at the beginning, talking about biosimilars, uh, you know, it's, it, it really needs to be a thoughtful process, including physician and provider and consumer input before we start just jumping into more cost-effective solutions because they might not be the right solutions. You're both hired. Yeah, by, by its definition, a biosimilar is not, um, you know, to be an interchangeable product, it has to literally, um, they have to do study after study that shows that the effects among various people are de minimis. And a biosimilar does not have that same standard, so it can very much affect different people in very different ways. I think one of my concerns when I read the letter was that insurance companies would take this, I don't think this was the intention of this policy, but that insurance companies are gonna use this to say, okay, well, the federal government, Medicare, CMS, they're pushing yeah. biosimilars, they're pushing and, you know, they're gonna change their policies even more to, you know, I'm, I've told Alice, I'm, dealing with a similar thing on a personal level with the medication and appealing that's been, you know, no longer my insurance company is not covering it anymore. And I, it's not just seniors. I, I think I know so many people that are, are struggling with getting coverage for long-term medications from their insurance company. So unfortunately, um, I agree with Alice. I think it's going to have to be something that's fixed 
politically because I do not see insurance companies. I think it's only going to get worse. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, you guys are both hired to represent me. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk about the last of the six in the um, the framework. And I like this one. I'm totally in favor of it. Um, more, in, you know, a, a, a greater level of access and improved access to behavioral health services. I think this is so critical and, and not just at CMS. I think this needs to be across the spectrum, irrespective. And, and, and study after study that's coming out now is showing just how drastically our children have been impacted by this public health emergency, let alone adults who have had life experiences, trigger moments, and you know, throughout the course of their life to deal with controversy, to deal with exclusion, to deal with you know, being you know, cut off for all intents and purposes. But I like this one, and, and I think it's important, and I'd like for you both to talk about this, but there's one specific that, you know, that, that really stuck out to me, and I'll get to in just a moment. But again, the question is, how much has lockdowns, have mask mandates, as well as other mandates, whether you want to call it disinformation or inconsistencies in the information that was coming out from the administration, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. So it's not one versus the other. They both gave out conflicting information, right? And I think we have to accept some of that is, look, we were learning about this stuff. So as more information came, but as opposed to speaking in absolutes, like several people did, we saw a lot of absolutes coming from the CDC, a lot of absolutes coming from the National Institutes of Health, as opposed to saying, at this point, here's what we know. Here's what the data suggests. Here's where we believe it's going to go. But we're going to update you. But with all things, it became completely politicized. But talk a little bit, ladies, please, about the improved access to behavioral health care for our seniors. Mm -hmm. I'll start off with the, with the general um, response and that um, Jenna talked about the specific CMS actions, because I'm really excited about um, both the general and the specifics. But, you know, what I, I think, you know, one of the silver lines of the pandemic is that people were more open to talking about mental health issues. Um, these stressors on our children, the stressors on seniors in nursing homes without visitation, the stressors on all of us who were, you know, had fearful, uh, had our normal um, social interactions and normal pathways disrupted. Um, so I think in part, uh, the idea of mental health started to get more destigmatized and more recognition as as important as physical health. And so it's, I'm hoping, you know, again, we're sort of looking at the ball a lot by, by looking at the trends, but I'm hoping that um, uh, the, a, a focus on mental health will become as routine as a focus on um, physical services and health. And I'd like to turn it over to Jenna to talk through some of the plans 
because it looks like the administration is really pushing to have mental health uh, more accessible through you know, your primary care, through um, other like more accessible interventions. Right, and um, that's what I loved about the um, initiative was they're trying, you know, children, as we talked about, teenagers were some of the most affected by the pandemic. I see it in my own house with three kids. And I love that they're trying to bring it to their level, to community centers, to schools, um, pediatricians being able to, you know, hopefully provide more services, more referrals, even direct help. Um, and I, I think this is where, to me, where telehealth was most effective during the pandemic was in the behavioral health setting. And I really hope that some of those telehealth waivers for behavioral health stay permanent. Um, having a college, um, a child that's in college, so many kids, um, you know, during the pandemic were able to still stay with their counselors across state lines. And if they take that away, that's that's a problem. You know, I, I think that that was one of, you know, one of the good things that came out of the pandemic was this telehealth for behavioral services. And I really hope that um, they continue to build on that because I do think you, I think you can reach more kids. Kids are on their phones. Kids don't want to go sit in an office on a couch. They, you know, they'll talk to someone on FaceTiming on a phone any day of the week. So um, yeah. I really, I like, I agree. This is one of my favorite things in the letter. And I hope, um, I really hope that we do get more access to behavioral health in all aspects for all populations. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I read is, you know, and, and, and we, you talked about it, right? Including access to prevention and treatment services for substance uh, use disorders, mental health services, crisis intervention, all critically important. I, I found this last one really interesting, pain care, okay? And for me, and, and tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm misinterpreting this, but when I look at pain care, you know, I'm thinking about pain management, right? I'm thinking about the use of opioids um, as a breakthrough for pain control, things of that nature. How much do you think the Ruan case with the Supreme Court, now, they all but overturned the convictions of the two physicians, right? And they remanded it back to the lower court. How much do you think providers will now have, from a comfortability standpoint, prescribing the type of medications, the quantity of medications as a good, honest prescriber using clinical judgment. Do you think this will be something that will be more freely um, explored by providers now? Or do you think that there's still going to be that hesitation? Just a sidebar question. Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting, a very interesting case. Um, so I think it rec really recognizes uh, physician discretion. And it is very difficult to, to show an abuse of medical discretion 
um, if there's if there's truly a, a medical necessity need underlying it. I think that's the key. Um, you know, physicians. You know, I, I hope will recognize the need to con continue to use proper screening tools um, and their judgment. But I do hope that they are feel freer to uh, rely on that judgment and not feel like um, that external forces are going to be um, judging that medical judgment as harshly. Um, we, you know, we've ended up doing a, quite a bit of pain management enforcement area. And, um, you know, this recognition that physicians can disagree um, in the same circumstances and it's difficult to tell legitimate prescriptions from not legitimate. So I'm, I'm hoping that providers do feel more discretion there, but I hope they also continue to recognize uh, the, the great uh, SOFAR tools, for example, um, and other uh, sort of um, guidance uh, to, to help guide them towards the right decision as well. I think though I would caution I would caution I would caution them anytime you're dealing with telehealth and then you add in narcotics, um, you're probably going to open yourself up to a lot of scrutiny too. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, think, I, very, I, think, yeah. I think prescribing opioids by telehealth is a whole nother issue. Uh, right. So, I agree. Yes. I, I, uh, <laughs> that setting still gives me a lot of heartburn, but I was thinking <laughs> the traditional right, um, right. model where you're doing face-to-face -face and, and you've got to, you know, that's a good point. So there's a lot of issues to think about here and not take the case as a, as a free pass, but more if you're doing it properly and and have the right guardrails in place there should be a comfort that your discretion should hold up it was yeah. a win for providers that's for sure i think so because you know it's going to force prosecutors to use their discretion as to whether or not they're going to bring these cases in the first place and i think that it has nothing to do with accountability on prosecutors. I think it's going to put it back onto the prosecutors to use prosecutorial discretion as right. to whether or not to bring these cases because they have to be able to now demonstrate that a provider was knowingly acting in bad faith outside of what would be considered a normal prescribing habit. But it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens now that the case has been remanded back to the lower district court to see how they handle this. So let me ask you, let's, let's kind of put a, a nice little bow tie on this thing. Um, your conclusion talks about the six trends, again, that we've talked about through this podcast today. And I agree with you. You're, they're, just, they're just at the tip of the iceberg on this thing, because there's so many, to Jenna's point, as you made earlier, and yours, Alice, there's so many other things that were in this open letter that, you know, could drive us in one direction or another. Can you quickly give our listeners, our viewers, some key takeaways, things that they need to be aware of and be prepared for moving forward? I think um, uh, keeping a real eye out for the opportunity to comment on the changes that are coming forward. Um, you know, as we were talking today, I think what's interesting is that the administration announced the, this action plan in an open letter, but they really started to um, 
uh, move forward with a lot of initiatives, and some of them uh, are are asking for active um, commentary from not only providers but consumers as well. So I think um, keep an eye on these issues and, and make sure that you or your provider or our clients or even ourselves comment where necessary to help drive things going forward. Um, Jenna, what do you think as, as a takeaway for providers, consumers, and um, for our industry? I agree with everything you said, and I'd also just caution providers that are still relying on some of the waivers that the public health emergency is going to end and they need to have a plan in place to um, be able to comply, um, you know, once it's over and make sure because once it's over, you know, that's going to, that's going to generate a whole new auditing string of, did you comply by this date with the end of the, this waiver? Um, so they really need to be ready to, you know, we're getting the, the whole focus of our article is it's, you know, we're out of the pandemic and we're going forward and CMS is moving on. And so you have to be ready to practice compliantly in this new world. Yeah, I think these are all great takeaway messages. And I think our listeners, our viewers will greatly appreciate that. All right, this is gonna bring us to the very end of this episode of The Compliance Guy. I wanna thank my very special guests, Jenna Godlewski and Alice Harris of Nexon Pruitt in the health law team uh, for their time. I'm gonna make sure that I have a link to their updated article available for any of you that want to go in and uh, take a closer look, examine as to the six trends that the ladies have identified as what they really are following uh, moving forward. And with that said, this is going to conclude our episode today. As always, thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while. It's because of all of you that we are number six on the top 25 regulatory and health law podcasts out of more than 2,600 podcasts. And thank you to each and every single one of you who nominated the show and to those of you who have voted, we have been nominated for a People's Choice Award. You can find us under the Andy Curry or the business categories if you so wish to vote for us. And until tomorrow, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.